This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello, and welcome to another of Deep State Radio's one-on-one conversations, this one with Peter Singer, author of the new book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, which is getting a huge amount of attention, in part because Peter's other books have gotten a huge amount of attention, such as uh, Ghost Fleet, uh, in part because it's incredibly in the moment, uh, and because it's a a very, very good book. Peter, welcome. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the kind words. Well, of course. Uh, no, it's a it's a it's a really important story. One of the things we've liked to do is sort of stay on the books that are are driving the conversation. Uh, and uh, y- you know, you sort of hit the nail on the head here. You know, David Sanger is one of our regulars, and he's just put out a book on cyber. Um, uh, and cyber is obviously, you know, part of the issue. But when we think, for example, of the Russian attack on the U.S., or when we think of some of the other things that are going on now, uh, we start to see that it's not cyber sending codes to blow up other people's computers uh, or worms or, or, or other such techniques. One of the things that's really become a big battleground is, in fact, social media changing the conversation, co-opting the conversation, stepping in in front of the others who are trying to deliver a message uh, and 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 really sort of, you know, I don't know how you know how you put it better than I will, but it's kind of, you know, it's pouring something, you know, hallucinogenic sometimes into the public Kool-Aid, you know, it's, you, you can, you know, you're, but you're spiking the public punch bowl, you know, with, 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 with some of this social um, media interventions. And so I, I guess the first question, you've been working on this book for, for, for what you said, five years, talk, talk a little bit about what it was that, that, that motivated you to focus on this right now. Sure. So let me jump in, though, on the um, first part that you were hitting of the notion of cyber. Um, The way we look at it is if cyber war is the hacking of networks, like war is the hacking of people on the networks by driving ideas viral through a mix of likes but also lies and the system's own algorithms. And um, arguably, it's been as or even more uh, important, impactful than uh, some of the most noted hacks. I mean, so if you, you know, you were referencing the 2016 election, I mean, hacking a political campaign's email um, was nothing new. I mean, that happened to McCain, happened to Obama. Um, that, that's happened before. What made it matter this time around is the combination with the like war side of things, the influence operations, the layering it over with bots and trolls and sock puppets. And importantly, uh, you know, not just a Russian operation, but combining with all of these other players out there, whether it's um, for profit fake news creators. Um, one of the groups in the book that appears is these Macedonian teenagers are running click farms. They're the people behind the, um, you know, Pope endorses Donald Trump. Uh, um, 
report, which was, of course, it was false, but it was read by more people than the top performing New York Times uh, article of the election. Um, but then you have the alt-right, you've got Trump's online army. So the point is it, it's uh, had a greater impact. And then the second aspect of it is that the tactics, the tools, the approaches have spread. And uh, so we are seeing the very same approaches used in everything from going after Brexit to going after not just the 2016, but the upcoming 2018 election to the Mexican election. It's playing out in Brazil. Um, and then it's also very likely to go down a level. So we've seen it uh, going after national level, but also uh, state and local level. Uh, so I just wanted to hit that idea that you were you were you were talking about where this is it's akin to cyber, but frankly, um, it's much bigger. Uh, it's had greater impact and it's something that involves all of us because it's our clicks that decide what happens. The, the origin point to more directly answer your question, the origin point of the project was several years back, uh, basically looking at a couple of incidents that, um, seemingly had kind of broken the, the, what had happened before in history. Uh, you had us soldiers being allowed to, um, use social media. Uh, and so suddenly for the first time you could have two sides of the battlefield able to talk to each other, um, not yelling over a trench, uh, but they could find each other online and interact. It also meant that we as individuals could interact. Um, you know, you had uh, individuals, reporters could reach out and talk to uh, an Al-Qaeda member. You then had the incident in um, Kenya where a shopping mall was taken over by a group of terrorists and they live tweeted it. And for a while, because of the way the, the Kenyan government kind of mishandled it, they were the, the primary information source on what was going on in this terrorist attack, the terrorists themselves. And then, of course, they began to do just like what the Russians would do later. They began to weaponize it. They began to spread misinformation about what was going on. So this was the spark. And then you had the rise of ISIS, um, a group that wouldn't have existed without social media. Um, and it weaves it into everything from its physical battlefield operations to it uses it to drive fear viral. Americans are more afraid of terrorism um, after the rise of ISIS than they are after 9-11. Um, and then you get uh, actions in Ukraine and Russia using it to foment um, unrest, to help spark a war. Um, it documents war crimes. And then, of course, it moves over into our election. Um, and then you get incidents like Charlottesville. Uh, and so the point of the book was to kind of pull back and um, research just what the heck is going on here and come at it not just from the data and quantitative side, but mix in everything from psychology to political science to military history, but also to interview the key players. And that was probably the most fun of the project. Um, it's weird for me to say this, but you know, it, we had fun interviewing everyone from tech company executives, extremist group recruiters, to um, TV reality stars, to General Michael Flynn. Um, and so bringing together the insights of all of these different people, I think, uh, un unpacks what's going on here and helps us understand it all. You mean, in, in addition, but when you say Michael Flynn, you mean in addition to convicted felons? Um, uh, who he, he had a, um, a, a an interesting change in his life status um, <laughs> after uh, we talked to him. He was at the time had uh, just. But there's no the connection. There's no connection between you talking to him and the change in his life status. Uh, no, no, no. We um, he has himself to blame for that. Um, and actually, I mean, it's a it's a totally. 
uh, fascinating, you know, I would describe it almost, you know, he's a real world person, but he's a character in a book in the book at this like pivot moment. So he talked to us about, um, what's known as open source intelligence. The, the idea, you know, if, if human is, um, human spies stealing secrets and, and SIGINT is cracking codes. OSINT is the idea that there's, um, information out in the open. And Flynn, um, talked to us about how, uh, this was the biggest change in his career that, uh, you know, it used to be the OSINT, uh, they weren't all that valuable. And then he says, you know, now it's 90% of the good stuff is out in the open. This is where the gold nuggets are. And it's part of the story of, uh, what he tried to bring to the DIA, but then, um, his reforms are, you know, basically too much and combined with his management style, it basically ends his career. And, you know, if the story had ended there, General Flynn would be remembered as this like prophet who had seen the future and paid the price. But of course, that's not the end of the tale. And um, he's dismissed uh, from the military. Um, he channels his energy into a mix of media appearances and making money. Um, and that entangles him in you know, everything from foreign lobbying deals to uh, accepting $45,000 to speak at a Russian government-sponsored gala for RT. Uh, and he sits beside Putin. And more important, though, um, this rising celebrity brings himself to the attention of one Donald Trump, who is uh, looking for uh, validators um, and uh, people to you know, basically serve as his, his surrogates during the campaign. And Flynn leaps into this. Um, he uses his old army rank as like a weapon to go after uh, Trump's rivals, but also he begins to dive into this online world that he'd previously been an observer of. And the result is just not pretty. And he, you know, it's just wonderful when you backtrack, you know, again, everything's out in the open, um, at general Flynn, his account, you know, it opens in, in 2011 with a single tweet, uh, linking to a news article on middle East politics and not a single person replies or retweets it. But as he enters politics, Flynn's online persona changes and he becomes this just font of conspiracy theory and hate and fear. And he's pushing out everything from anti-Semitic messages to anti-Muslim messages to um, claims that, you know, it's not just Obama as a secret Muslim, but he's a, quote, jihadi who, quote, laundered money for terrorists. Um, Hillary Clinton's not just the opposition. She's involved in, quote, sex crimes with children. Um, he even pushes out the idea of uh, hashtag spirit cooking, which is um, the claim that there is a uh, secret cabal of um, it's not just the deep state. It's people who gather in D.C. to have dinners drinking human blood and semen. Now, compared to that first tweet that got not a gross. Yes, that's the, that's well, disgusting. Where well, is that happening at the at Comet? Is that um, happening at Comet Pizza or where is that? Uh, so the, the key here is he gets forty eight hundred likes for that. Oh, and yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, you get w w the way we talk about it is, um, in essence, yes, there's the gold nuggets of information out there, but there's also pyrite. There's fool's gold being deliberately spread. And you get this phenomena of 
um, the truth is out there, but it's being buried underneath a sea of lies. Well, the interesting thing is, is the nature of the sea, you know, and, and it's tempting to talk about a sea change. You talk about OSINT. 18 years ago, I started a company with Anthony Lake, former National Security Advisor, John Deutsch, who was a former head of the CIA, later some folks like Susan Rice, who was a later of the National Security Advisor, um, and John Gannon, who had been at the CIA, to, to, to figure out how we could use open source intelligence, uh, harvest it, help people answer questions, and so forth. And we would go to the military and the first reaction of a lot of them was, well, if it's open, it's not valuable. Uh, and there's this whole sort of culture of rejection of all of this that exists there. And then as you find more and more information is there, some people get with the program. And long before you know, Mike Flynn got with the program, for example, Anthony Zinni, who was the commanding general of CENTCOM, got with the program and told me, well, 80 percent of what we get that's classified is actually available via open source. And of the remaining 20 percent, 80 percent is discoverable if you know what you're looking for. And so it's out there. And so there is this kind of growing sea that's teeming and people start to sort of dip into it. But, you know, it, it all of a sudden people recognize that they can alter the debate, that they can make 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 things more important than they already are, that 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 you know, it doesn't matter what's actually out there, it matters what's being consumed. And that if something has that pyrite gleam to it, then people will be drawn to it. And so people who are a little bit more extreme or or tap into emotions a little bit more pro, pro you know trigger this virality that's really the thing that drives both consumption of information but also sort of the the after effects political after effects and others from from all of this and and it's almost as though all aspects of culture have been changed by this you talk about like war but it's it's a every everything is happening here this, you know, everything is happening in this place. Commerce is happening there. Romance is happening mm -hmm. there. War mm -hmm. is happening there. Politics is happening there. These things are all blended together. People don't know what's what. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's ne there's never been anything quite like it. So much you said there that's important. Um, and you know, we have a, a point in the book where. You know, we, we open with the story of Trump's very first tweet and how it's wrapped up within, you know, a, a, a change in um, American politics, geopolitics. But we pull back to say, you know, this is not a story of Donald Trump. This is not a story of merely um, politics. It's not a story of merely war. Um, it's a story of a bigger change that's gone on. Uh, and um, it plays out just as you note because of the design of the system. Uh, social media is not designed to reward morality. It's not designed to reward veracity. It's designed to re reward virality. And um, that's how the companies uh, make money. Um, it creates an attention economy. And those that understand the rules of it uh, have turned it into great success. Um, and great success defined as everything from winning your election to winning your marketing war to winning your actual war. Um, you used another uh, key phrase there. You talked about the, the power of emotion. And one of the things we try and break down 
are these new rules of the game. And what's utterly fascinating is, you know, whether you're talking about characters that range from Donald Trump to uh, ISIS's top recruiter to Taylor Swift to um, Kanye. Uh, you're getting to Kanye. I know. No, I mean, well, that's a good example of online armies going back and forth and like, but the point is all of these diverse actors with wildly different goals keep coming back to the very same tactics. There are a certain set of rules on how to win online and then take that and achieve your real world goals. And, you know, we kind of break them down, but one of them you hit is, 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 um, the power of emotion, uh, the power to provoke. And importantly, um, it's not just emotion, but the most powerful emotion, at least online is anger. And those that have tooled that into their campaigns uh, have invariably won. And those that haven't have fallen by the wayside. Another is this notion of um, it sounds like a contradiction. So much of this seems like a contradiction. But of course, you know, their new rules their new features is planned authenticity. Uh, it's the idea of being real online but doing so in a way where you know the world is watching you. And that is a attribute that um, Taylor Swift, but also this guy named Junaid Hussein, who was ISIS's top recruiter, um, they've both kind of figured this out. Um, and so this, this is much bigger um, than you know, just a story of Trump or just a story of even politics. It's these new ways of shaping the way that um, – People don't just consume the news, but how they perceive reality itself. We're talking about a shift that's akin to the rise of the printing press or the telegraph. It's of that kind of scale. And you and I are living through kind of this like inflection point, this moment where we're going to figure out, you know, which side wins out or the, the, the forces of light or the forces of evil. Is it going to be the forces of truth or is it going to be the conspiracy theorists, the, the alternative facts? Yeah, and I think, you know, we've been distracted by everything else for a long time. You know, I gave a TED Talk a couple of years ago in which I was saying, you know, we've spent the past 17, 18 years focusing on terrorism as though it were the big thing that we were facing. Meanwhile, there is this tsunami, a once in every 500 years, like the printing press tsunami, that is literally reinventing what is war? What is peace? What is money? What is a job? What is society? What is culture? What is a country? What is a polity? All of these things are, and 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 we are. It's ha the change is happening so fast that we are not able to take it in, and 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 we're impeded by the fact that we're focusing on something altogether different. Uh, and what we've discovered, and I think one of the reasons the book is so timely, is that while terrorists who blow up things are, are, are dangerous, uh, if those things are buildings, terrorists who blow up ideas, blow up the notion of facts, blow up cultural norms, um, blow up societies by spreading disaffection, dissent, um, uh, uh, uh you know, false narratives and so forth. They're much, they're much worse. They're they're much bigger threat right now. Uh, and yet, you know, you know, when you when when you have that problem, who do you call on the government? So you've seen this has been wrapped up within that story of distraction. Um, you know, the social media is is the core to ISIS's rise. 
in terms of recruiting people, in terms of its, um, we, we talk about the battle of Mosul and how ISIS weaves its online activities into its physical campaign to help it take over this Iraqi city, even though it's got a, um, invading army that's one tenth the size of the defenders, but also, um, it's via social media that uh, it creates a contagion of fear that um, basically sucks in our our own politics and changes it. Um, more Americans were afraid of terrorism after the rise of ISIS than they were after 9-11, after you've just had 3,000 Americans actually killed. Um, instead, it's the appearance of this group that's adeptly using social media to spread its message and then in turn by um, entrepreneurs uh, who are taking advantage of it and leveraging it to their own ends, whether you're talking about the media companies, the Breitbarts of the world to politicians, you name it. Um, but, you know, again, this change happened so fast. I mean, it's, you know, Zuckerberg going from uh, writing software in his dorm room to allow uh, basically his fellow Harvard schoolmates to rate who's hot or not in a more efficient manner. I mean, that's the origin of face mash. And then you move forward and suddenly it's helping determine everything from uh, the outcome of elections, the rise of a terrorist group to, you know, these battles over the definition of free speech. And I, you know, I think you frame it interestingly in you know, talking about the raised stakes of this. And part of it is also, uh, you know, the beauty of the internet is that it's allowed a, a measure of connection um, that's never been possible, but it's also opened up um, new vulnerabilities, new seams in our society. So if you think about, for example, the, the Russian um, activities, um, in many ways, they are a form of censorship. Um, it's not censorship in terms of blocking discussion of something, but rather it's, again, this notion of censorship by burying the truth, burying the stories that you don't like underneath a sea of lies. But what they've been able to do is not just accomplish that within Russia, but also for the very first time, export censorship. It's allowed one nation to reach into another nation's not just politics, but the individual hearts and minds and beliefs of individual citizens in a way that just wasn't possible before. I mean, you go back to War One, and the war begins, and then the the British they basically just cut the the telegraph lines. Well, now you've got you know um, over 146 million Americans were exposed uh, to direct Russian disinformation campaign on Facebook to you had, you know, Russia picking and choosing which internal messages it wanted to highlight and push back. Um, and so, you know, again, this is new and it's challenging, but I also don't want it to, to come across as like incredibly depressing and there's nothing that we can do about it. There's a series of measures that can be taken at the government level, at the corporate level, at the individual level. And some of them pull from um, best practices that other nations have been have put into place. Um, you know, Estonia has a incredibly vibrant democracy, but it's also better defended itself against these kind of uh, threats to um, some of them echo back to things that we had in uh, U.S. history during the Cold War. For example, we had a, a organization known as the Active Measures Working Group. It basically brought together spies, diplomats, communicators, teachers. And it was all about how do we identify KGB disinformation campaigns? How do we identify them? How do we counter them? 
we don't have that to defend ourselves right now. Now, the problem in this is that um, it's not just figuring out best practices. It's changing the incentives. Too often, the beneficiaries of these awful practices of the worst side of this um, are been incentivized to do more. And that's true whether you're talking about Russia, which um, has come back from war because it sees it as a low cost, uh, easy way to win out. Um, but also people within our domestic politics, it's going to be really hard to do something about, uh, for example, Russian disinformation campaigns, as long as the president of the United States is an echo chamber for some of them. Well, in fact, people like Trump and politicians everywhere benefit from the devaluation of truth. They benefit from how norms are being changed by some of those who are using um, uh, the the social media to achieve uh, sort of the traditional goals of war um, because it helps them achieve political goals, economic goals, and other goals. There is a there there are lots of people out there who benefit from the chaos uh, and the and and the 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 lack of clear norms that exist within this system right now. And, and, you know, that, well, let me take it to an, an, another. Well, can I hit that though? Yeah. So one, you, you definitely have this kind of change and this has happened with every communication technology. It's rippled out to, you know, affect business, um, but as well as politics and war, uh, you know, so if you think of the television, the television changed the, um, type of politicians that would win out. Suddenly you needed to be telegenic. It also, uh, created new powers. Um, uh, you know, famously LBJ cries out that he's lost the Vietnam war when Walter Cronkite, the anchor man turns against it. And so social media has done the same thing. And, you know, it's been part of the story of the rise of Trump, but it's not going away because it affects all future politicians. But also, um, maybe this is me trying to be a little bit too positive. Uh, yes, there, there are politicians that tool it, um, or they've seen the advantage of pushing disinformation, mistruths and the like. But first we've, we're very careful in the book to every time there's a bad story, every time there's a, a character that's using it in some awful way, we partner it with a good story, someone who's using it in a good way. Uh, so, you know, whether it's, um, crowdsourcing to fund terrorists, to crowdsourcing to help identify and stop war crimes, to, you know, ISIS's top online recruiter, to, you know, paralleled by a Muslim American woman who's organized her own online campaign to go back against ISIS recruiters. She's um, built up what she calls uh, jokingly Dumbledore's army. Um, it's a reference to Harry Potter. It's a group of teenagers who've basically, you know, if, if ISIS is targeting um, a teenager with recruiting, the best counter is not like the State Department. It's a bunch of other teenagers to go back. So there's, there's this back and forth, um, that's there that again, I think also applies to, you know, our partisan politics. Yes. Uh, maybe we've seen, you know, one side went out, but it's also going to feel the bad side of this eventually. Um, we, you know, just as the, uh, DNC was hacked and, um, mistruths spread by a Russian activity, 
The Russians were also bipartisan. Um, we can look at the the ads that they pushed online uh, that were targeting, you know, both far right uh, folks and um, trying to get support for Trump. But it was also you saw targeting of Bernie supporters and LGBT Um Again, the goal they had was division, discord, distrust. And that's why we've got to see it not through a purely partisan lens. Well, one of the challenges that we've got, of course, is that from the time that Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1439, it was 350 years to the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. And there was a lot of debate about how that technology should affect social discourse. As it happened in that 350 years, it was also the amount of time it took to go from the first book to the hundred millionth book. It took about 70 years to go from the first phone to the hundred millionth phone. It took 33 days to go from the first edition of Angry Birds to the hundred millionth <laughs> version being downloaded of Angry Birds. Things are happening really fast. And our leaders, the people who are supposed to be handling this, aren't changing over that quickly. Most of them aren't educated in these things. And when you watch something like Mark Zuckerberg in front of the uh, the United States Congress, no matter how maladroit Mark Zuckerberg is, he's you know, just sort of dancing in circles around the members of Congress who literally don't get it. The number of people in the United States Congress who understand the issues we're talking about here um, are, 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 you know, could fit in the tiny uh, broadcast studios of deep state radio here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. And it's a small, <laughs> it's a small, although very highly equipped broadcast studio. Um it, we, we've got a problem, which is the people who are supposed to be leading and dealing with this massive sea change in the way society and politics and economics and war and peace work don't get it. You weave in uh, the, you know, you connect everything from the printing press to the First Amendment. And one of the most fun parts of this book project was going back and um, exploring a little bit of this history. And so, you know, in the story of our uh, founding and constitution, you even see the problems woven into it. the um, first, uh, the early newspapers in America um, has a problem uh, in the 1720s where uh, one of the young men working at it begins to post a series of um, false stories. He uh, writes as if he is a a woman um, and shares uh, basically false stories in the early newspaper that creates all sorts of controversies. The writer of it was a young Benjamin Franklin. So the problem of fake news in America first emerges with one of the founding fathers. Um, so, you know, we've had, you, you've hit exactly, we've, we've gone through these cycles, we've had these problems. Fortunately, we've kind of had uh, the luxury of time in the past to work it out. And as you know, you know, this has come on so quick uh, and we've not been well equipped for it. And that includes our basic understandings of it. And that's where, you know, one of the ways that we, we frame the book around the notion of um, conflict is that um, conflict also points to how there's two sides and there's always learning back and forth. 
And, you know, the early part of the book has the example of how ISIS basically cleans our clock in the, in the first battle of Mosul. And then you move forward. And by the end of the book, and I don't want to ruin it all, but you've got um, the U.S. military taking back Mosul. And it's using many of the very same strategies that ISIS had done. It's weaving in some of the things that the Russians had done against our politics. And basically, there's this kind of learning going on. And it's a, it's a good illustration of what we need to do. We need to learn the new rules of the game. And the we applies to everything from the politicians so that they're not making fools of themselves in their hearings, uh, but more importantly, leading us to good policy, to the companies themselves learning how you know their own creation, their platforms have um, become these kind of battle spaces. And there's certain things that they can do about it to you and I. We have to understand the rules of the game because what's so wonderful about this is we're the ones that decide. It's our clicks that decide all of this. But if we don't understand it, we're going to not just be targeted and taken advantage of. We're going to be part of the problem. Yeah, well, um, that's the watershed where we find ourselves right now. Uh, and uh, books like like War um are you know a, a step in the direction of trying to address this i should note that you've written this with emerson brooking uh and i should also note that like war is one word uh and that if you go and look for a book called like war you're going to have problems but if you look for a book called like war you'll find this book uh and you should because like war the weaponization of social media deals with an issue that is exceptionally important exceptionally uh timely uh, and uh, is something everybody who is out there in the world of deep state radio who is interested in these issues uh, should spend some time with. For that reason, I'm incredibly glad that Peter could spend this time with us. Uh, I hope you'll come back again sometime soon to talk about other issues, uh, and I hope that the book tour will not be too debilitating. <laughs> Thank you again. It's um, been uh, a pleasure and an honor to join the deep state. And now you have uh, therefore confirmed all the internet conspiracy theories about me. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, that was part of the deep state as well. So <laughs> I really appreciate the chance to talk about this book. Thank you very much. Talk to you again soon, Peter. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you. And if you want more like this, go to deepstateradionetwork.com, where there's always additional new content and where you can sign up, become a member, support Deep State Radio, buy a mug, buy a T-shirt, buy a water bottle, buy a challenge coin, do something. It helps us, helps the Deep State, and helps us do more good programming like this. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.